Hello, and welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. This is Tom Greeley and Mike Greeley, your hosts from Newmark Capital Markets. Mike, uh, I feel like I haven't seen much of you in the last couple of weeks. You've been on the road. Tell me what you've been up to. On the road again. We were down in Florida for the Revista Medical Office Conference. I was with my partners, Jay, John, and Ben from our healthcare capital markets team at Newmark. And, you know, Revista is a great MOB conference. And I think almost all the active players in the healthcare real estate business were there. And I think the resounding vibe was very positive. Despite all the headwinds, you know, there's a ton of enthusiasm in the crowd. And I think that's mostly because the fundamentals of the medical office asset class, where I spend most of my time, are largely intact. No one was ever chasing rent growth in medical office. The hospital and healthcare tenants are still as sticky and strong as ever, which is what people love. And especially in an environment like we're in today, in a recessionary environment, MOB, like some of the other alts, has always outperformed. We call it the tortoise and the hare, slow and steady asset class, and certainly is recession resilient. So I think we're going to continue to see a trickle of new capital into the space. Our platform has been very active in facilitating a lot of that new equity into the market, which is something we pride ourselves on. But you know, have we seen pricing changes? Absolutely. Totally correlated to the debt markets and not due to the other fundamental headwinds. So it differentiates the asset class. It was great to see everyone. The medical office world has grown significantly since I got it into it in 2008, but still somehow maintains sort of a family atmosphere. So it was great to see everyone. A lot of love down there for good dirt, which, which was cool to hear. I love it. Overall encouraged, positive vibes, good attendance. You're pleased with the conference. Yeah, I think everyone was encouraged. One thing that stuck out to me, several of the groups we work closely with in the market have development pipelines that are full. And, you know, across medical office, inpatient rehab, behavioral, I think there's going to be a lot of activity on the development side. Obviously, construction costs posing some significant challenges there at a project level. But it's good to know that tenants and systems are continuing to expand, even an environment where things like sort of the COVID hangover and contract labor issues are putting some pressure on the healthcare systems. That shift to outpatient care continues, and that's a big part of our business. So all good. Well, it sounds like NMHG a month ago where lots of capital, lots of positive activity, and it sounds like it was a good time. So welcome back. And I myself wasn't around all that much. We've been on the road, Mike Byrne and I, packaging a couple of deals. We, we just launched our 1,722-unit portfolio, the suburban Boston portfolio for Harbor Group. So that's going to keep us super busy. There's no easy way to get from Bill Ricca to Marshfield with five stops in between on 495, but it's a great portfolio. And if anybody's interested, give us a call. There's some good sub shops along that route. We've sold this portfolio before, so I know every sub shop, every Dunkin' Donuts, every stop along the way. So I, we're I, pretty I, good at that. I could tell you where to get your skates sharpened too, around each of those places. Yeah. And Town Spot Pizza is right by the Stoughton deal. So we're there a lot. Anyways, let's get on to today's interview. We are thrilled to welcome you back to Good Dirt and today to welcome Maureen Joyce. Maureen is the Managing Director of U.S. Real Estate Equities Asset Management for Bearings. Bearings, if you don't know, is a $347 billion entity managing capital on behalf of its parent company, Mass Mutual, in addition to a series of fund vehicles and separately managed accounts. Maureen joined Bearings in 2022 after nearly 20 years in leadership positions with AEW. She started her career at Copley Real Estate Partners, a predecessor firm to AEW actually, which is a training ground for future Boston real estate legends and a pioneer in the arena of institutional investment into commercial real estate. At Copley and then at Spaulding and Sly, a common theme among some of our interviewees so far, Maureen wore many hats, an experience that she credits with shaping her into a well-rounded asset management icon that she is today. And everything from that property-level accounting, leasing, capital markets, and investor relations has served her well throughout an illustrious career. Maureen shares with us lessons learned investing and managing large-scale portfolios through cycles. And while she points out similarities to the market conditions of today, she is quick to observe that no two cycles are the same. It was really fun to sit down with Maureen, and she brings a great perspective. And that group of Copley alums, that's a brand name that's sort of gone away and had been rolled up in AEW, but they were really on the front edge of institutional real estate investment. And it was very cool to hear her perspective on how that market evolved. Maureen also shared with us some of the guiding principles that she's picked up over the years, including the importance of reading the documents. That's right, reading them yourself and not relying on others to do so, because a day may come when the language and covenants really matter, and you need to pull that file out of the folder. Finally, we had some fun with Maureen, and 
heard about her family, her two sons who are both in the real estate business and what she likes to do in her off time. We learned a lot from Maureen and hope you all enjoy this conversation with a true pro in the institutional investment world. One last note before we jump into the interview, we ask that you stick around for some parting thoughts regarding the recent loss of a true American hero. Thank you. All right, welcome to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. Today, we are joined by Maureen Joyce of Bearings. Maureen is Managing Director and Head of U.S. Real Estate Equity Asset Management, and we're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you, Maureen. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you guys. Good to see you, and thank you for being here. So, Maureen, you've listened to one or two of these before. As you know, the first portion of the interview is typically bringing us back to your beginnings in the business, coming out of school, what was your first job like, where did you start, and then we'll get into the trajectory from there. I really had no grand plan to get into real estate. I listened to your podcast with Kyle Warwick, who I think followed in his dad's footsteps. I didn't do that. I went to Trinity College in Connecticut. And when I came out of school, I actually worked for Channel 2 for a couple years. No way. I worked as an accountant and I had no background in accounting. I had taken one accounting class at Trinity, but was an economics major. So I went to Channel 2, worked for a couple of years and said pretty quickly, this is not for me. <laughs> not in, want to be in television. I don't want to be an accountant. And at the same time, I had talked to an employment agency and I went to an interview at Copley Real Estate Advisors. I got that job. I started there as an accountant because that was my background. But I looked around me and I said, again, I don't want to be an accountant. I don't have the background to have a full career in accounting, even though it would have been a great career, but I hadn't been trained for that. So I moved over to the portfolio management team for a while. And spent, I think, two years as a portfolio manager at Copley and then lifted my head up and said, geez, I'd like to be closer to the real estate. I want to negotiate leases. I want to understand the sale process. I need to understand this if I'm going to have a better and a longer career in real estate. So I went into asset management at Copley, too. And then after that, I was there for another couple of years and moved back to portfolio management. I really liked being on the client side of the relationship in the industry. And Maureen, I think people in the business today, many people don't understand what Copley was at that time, but an absolute powerhouse, one of the most respected firms in the market. What was that like at that moment in time in this business? How would you describe Copley and the mojo that was going on there? Well, it's funny. People called me Mojo when I was at Copley. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, wow. There was uh, an unintended. That was unintended. unintended. I know. Copley was a great place. It had great people, really smart, really talented people. I learned a lot there. And in fact, sometimes I think the time that I spent there, what I learned was an entire career's worth of knowledge during that short period of time. To give you some background on Copley, it came out of New England life. It was really a pioneering firm with, at the time, Aldridge Eachman and Walsh that were investing third-party pension fund capital in real estate. Joe O'Connor came out of New England Life where he invested on behalf of the general account, but saw an opportunity to take institutional investors and have them invest in real estate, which was pretty unusual at the time. At the time, pension funds were investing in stocks and bonds. Real estate as an alternative asset class wasn't something that they had been focused on. But Joe had the experience, saw the opportunity. So he took a few people from New England Life and moved over and started Copley. And I started there, as I said, as an accountant and just learned a ton. So that was a front row seat to a shift in the institutional nature of the commercial market. So you were sort of watching this evolve. And obviously, that was a theme through your entire career. Right now, it absolutely is. So it's an interesting thread that sort of stayed with you through those years. Well, it's really interesting because you look at where I am now with bearings and its relation to Mass Mutual. We manage Mass Mutual's general account. Copley managed New England Life's general account. But we also had commingled funds. I worked on what was at the time when I first started their first closed-end commingled fund. It was called Copley Investors Limited Partnership. It was seeded with some New England Life assets, and then they went out and raised third-party capital. And then we started a developmental properties account, which was an open-end, basically opportunistic fund, which probably wouldn't survive today because of the fact that it was open-end right. and opportunistic. You don't hear we those had, words in a sentence very often these days. Not at all. We had a lot of land holdings. And while that was great 
while there was a need for development and development cycle was strong, once the economy started slowing down, we got hurt because we had too much land. And those portfolio management, asset management roles, were those New England properties? Was it office, multifamily? What types of assets were you involved with? We did a lot of industrial development. We had all the property types. We had multifamily. We actually did major development in big land tracts, particularly out in California. We had relationships with some of the top developers, Heinz, Trammell Crow, Mannequin in Baltimore, Tom Bizzuto. We had really strong- And these are all still big names today big that names. I'm sure you work with in your current role. Exactly. They're big names that have been very successful and Copley was there with them. In some cases, probably their first capital partner, and then they continue to expand and grow. Wow. Yeah. I think sometimes because we run into people all the time, a lot of the most impressive people in this industry that are Copley alums, because the brand name went away, you forget that this group of people sort of trained together and learned together. Yeah. There's a lot of us still around. And at the time I was there, it was a pretty young group. And it was the slogan that a lot of people use today, work hard, play hard. And we became really tight. We became really close friends. In fact, I met my husband at Copley. There were a bunch of marriages that came out of Copley, huh. all wholesome, yeah, you know, yeah. Amen. good stuff. And in fact, we're going to Nashville in a couple of weeks for one of our friend's birthday parties. And it was a Copley friend. Oh, that's no, so I know the friend. He's a client and good buddy. Yeah. And it looks like a great party. It's going to be a good party. <laughs> I've been convincing my wife that we should go. So maybe this will tip her over the edge. Maybe we'll see you there. See, it's work-related, podcast-related. Yeah, exactly. so but there we'll, will be other Copley alums there. Yeah, that's awesome. that's awesome. So we'll get more on the Mojo nickname maybe after the show. We want to hear that story for sure. Like Copley, another very strong group of professionals who have matriculated through the business are the Spalding and Spy Group. And we had Kyle on the podcast and we worked with Deb and Marty and a whole bunch of those folks. Talk a little bit about the Spalding Slide Days, what you were doing there, how that transition went from Copley to Spalding and what happened from there. Well, one of my Copley alums was there, Peter Bailey. He was at Spalding and Slide working in the sort of asset management, property management group and really trying to expand their asset management focus. So Peter and I were friends, stayed in touch, and he said there was an opportunity for me to come over, technically working in the property management group, but we were the asset manager sort of liaison between our on-the-ground property managers and our institutional clients. So I worked there for a while. Similar to my experience at Copley, though, I moved around a bit. I saw an opportunity to learn more about construction. So I worked a little bit in the project management team, actually reporting to Kyle Warwick. And it was great because I'm a financial person. I come from a financial background. Kyle came from a construction background. So I was able to learn a little bit with him on some of the projects that he was managing. And it was important to me. And then after doing that for a little while, I worked in the capital markets team too, sort of doing what you guys do now. Yeah. It's funny. We hear so often about people that were at these firms. And I think Everyone agrees they were very well served by moving around into a few different roles and sort of building that toolbox, which obviously has served you for the rest of your career. We haven't heard anybody who started in TV, though. That's a first. Yeah. And it's, it's Deb Gold an interesting, Deb interesting Gold a nurse. We often say these conversations, if you're a young person looking to get into the business, listen to these conversations because this is a bunch of different stories, a bunch of different pathways into commercial real estate. We haven't heard the TV one before, but Kyle also started in Hollywood. He was building, I think, the Getty, the Getty. Museum. That was yeah. his first project. So that was a lot maybe there's something to it. That's a lot cooler than working for Channel 2 <laughs> in the accounting group, I think. <laughs> so Spalding and Sly, and then eventually CBREI, or CBRE Global at the time, on the investment management side. As you continued along this path, you were already managing assets and portfolios through cycles, and there was a lot going on in the world over that time period. Where was sort of your opportunity and where was your focus as a professional and where did you feel like you might go next? Was the plan to continue along this path? And I don't think you could ever imagine the seat where you are today, you know, as a young person, but it's been a pretty interesting path that brought you to bearings. Where I was really focused, candidly, was on portfolio management. I ended up leaving Spalding and Sly in part because CB had a portfolio management position open. It was for a separate managing a separate account on behalf of a union pension fund. And I really do like portfolio management. I like the strategy. I like being involved in acquisitions from a portfolio standpoint. I like working with asset managers and 
executing strategy. So I moved over there for a few years, but then I had stayed in touch with Pam Herbst, who ran AEW's direct investment group, and she had offered me a job. So as a portfolio manager. So I really migrated to that side of the business because it allowed me to do so many things in terms of being involved with the clients on the investor side, as well as being close to the real estate, which I loved. And bringing me to where I am today, it was through the path at AEW. I was a portfolio manager, and when things were slowing down there a little bit, I saw an opportunity to really help out on asset management. So I became head of asset management there too. I went back to asset management, but this time as the head of asset management. And that's how I made the change to bearings. Eventually, I got a phone call from them and they had this position open and asked if I would be interested. And I met with Joe Gorin and John Ockerbloom and it really clicked. I mean, two really good guys. John's terrific. He's one of the primary reasons why I moved over. Having said that, though, I met a lot of really talented, really interesting people during my interview process, and it just made sense at that point in time in my career to try something new. Yeah, and and I think you oversaw a lot of tremendous growth at AEW in those portfolios and on behalf of different separately managed accounts and funds, and that was a 20-year run that was really amazing, I think. Copley was a predecessor firm to AEW back from the roll-up. But that time period was really incredible, maybe never replicated in the market as far as a lot of these investment managers that were able to scale and grow with institutional capital over that time period. We want to talk a lot about bearings because it's very interesting and intriguing to a lot of people in the market. One of the oldest and most respected institutional asset managers across the globe. And just for some numbers to give people a feel for the scale of bearings. Bearings has just about $350 billion of assets under management. That is diversified, which Maureen can tell us about. Almost $20 billion that is in real estate equities. And in your position as the head of U.S. real estate equity asset management, it's a pretty major portfolio to be overseeing. We want to talk a little bit about how you approach that on a day-to-day basis. But for a little history lesson, Bearings was the group that arranged the financing for the Louisiana Purchase which was a great fact that we uncovered here. Connell Chamberlain, our research ace, picked that up for us, which we enjoyed. I enjoyed too. I didn't realize it until you mentioned that to me in our conversation. It's not still in your portfolio? You don't oversee that one anymore? (laughs) It's it's, uh, It's a good multiple. Maybe the greatest real estate deal of all time was a Bearings deal. And the best part we found out, and this is true, the all-in rate was 6% on that deal on the Louisiana Purchase. Who would have thought? Times change, right? you go through cycles, but some things are pretty constant. That and we're kind of back to the same place we were in the 1800s. It's amazing. Mike touched on bearings. We do want to go into what you're doing over there and the landscape at the institution that it is. But I think one of the common misconceptions, at least in our business, is bearings, You know, it's part of Mass Mutual. It's a life company. That's what you do. You manage a balance sheet or you manage premiums and that's how you invest. But the reality is it's a very sophisticated financial intermediary. You have separate accounts, you have commingled funds, you do co-invest, you do programmatic joint ventures. It's more than just a life company. And I think that's something that people would love to hear about. How is bearing set up? What are your primary buckets of capital? We know you are in charge of the real estate equity portfolio manage- asset management, but what is the overall landscape at bearings? Well, step back a little bit and talk about bearings, big bearings. As you mentioned, it's a really big organization. And one of the attractions to me to go over there was the Mass Mutual affiliation or ownership by Mass Mutual, but also the fact that Bearings is a multi-asset class investor. And I really hadn't been exposed to that during my career. When you look in-house with what we manage, we have investment grade and high yield bonds. We have structured credit, global equities, emerging markets. And of course, we have real estate which is a big portion of the Bearings investment strategies as well. And within real estate, we have debt and equity. Now, you mentioned the $20 in equity. Now, that's globally for our real estate portfolio. Here in the U.S., it's about $13 billion, $13, $14 billion, and the rest is Europe and Asia. I manage the U.S. equities, not... Still a big number. It's still very impressive. Pretty decent portfolio. There's no question about it. And then the other thing that I think is the benefit of working for this multi-asset class investor is the research we get because our research team has to span all those asset classes, has to really look at the economy with a lens to what's happening 
in multiple asset classes, not just really highly focused on real estate. And I think that's great. It's really interesting to learn about what the other folks are doing. And then we have the Barings Investment Institute, which is our research platform, which takes the knowledge that comes bottom up from those investors and those various investment strategies across the different asset classes, but also the top-down economic overview that the research team at Bearings and Mass Mutual provide to us. It's terrific. That's really interesting to us is the global macro view that you have because of where you sit within Bearings. You have the benefit of an unbelievable amount of data and research and sort of economic, whether they're headwinds or tailwinds or following demographic trends, the access to that information is so powerful and and probably beyond what the great majority of real estate investment managers would have access to. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And I think it gives you a broader perspective and it makes you a better investor when you have all this information and data at your fingertips. And people, people who have different perspectives on what the economy looks like. It's really great to just be able to talk to somebody else who's working in a completely different investment strategy in a different asset class and hear what they're up to and what their view of the world is. And you have some great people. We've talked about a few of them already. Joe Gorin, who we love. We've known him for a long time. Chris Cassell is a great guy. Kevin Miller, John Neff and Ryan Namas on the debt side. These are all just one of the best roster of professionals that we work with across the board. How much time are you spending on a daily, weekly, monthly basis with individual asset managers, individual portfolio managers versus just overseeing the full $13 billion? Just give us a sense of, are you spending an hour a day with an individual asset or an individual portfolio? Is it a once a month check-in? How do you manage your day-to-day? Depends on the asset, candidly. Sometimes I have a lot more day-to-day involvement discussing not only strategy, but the execution of the strategy. Others, the assets are performing well. They're core properties that don't need as much time. It really depends on the asset. If you think about the course of the week, we have investment committee and pipeline on Monday. Generally, investment committees on Mondays and Thursday, but pipeline on Monday. So we take up with that. I also have senior asset manager meetings every Mondays, and we go through everything from what's going on at key assets. In this market, we're spending a lot of time talking about at-risk assets. We spend a lot of time just talking about sort of administrative and process things. One of the things that Bearings is doing and committed to is an upgrade to their digital workplace. So we're implementing new systems and we have to deal with that too. So my job not only is supporting the asset managers in their execution of the strategy, but also sort of the administrative operations side of the house too. And keeping those, the trains on running. And at that scale, how do you translate asset performance and all this back to your investors, back to the separate accounts or the LPs? Does that sort of fall within your team? So we have a separate portfolio management team and they report up to Joe. And so they're the folks that are talking to the investors on a day-to-day basis. We talked about the different strategies and structures that we have. So I'll give you a little overview of that. Mass Mutual is our biggest client. They're our parent, but our also biggest client in terms of managing assets for them on behalf of the general account. We have a core open-ended fund. Each of those has a separate portfolio management team. And then we have some separate accounts on behalf of some, both corporate and public pension plans. And then we just are coming up to our final closing for a new value-added closed-end commingled fund that really Joe was responsible for the strategy and was highly involved in the structuring and fundraising of that new commingled fund. Our final closing is the end of next month, and then we have a three-year investment period for that. It's exciting for us to hear. We have some ideas already. We've got to call Joe and Kevin. What's the size of that fund ballpark? I think we're going to finish up with about $650 million, wow. and then we'll have some co-investment capital as well. Great. But, but it, I bring that up just to say that we have different portfolio managers who are responsible for those strategies and for those relationships. And they're the ones that are speaking with their separate account. And their investors. Investor, probably on a daily, weekly basis. For the commingled fund, it's a little less often, but certainly we have a regular cadence of meetings and reporting. So they're the ones reporting out. To the extent we have annual meetings or semi-annual meetings with the investors, oftentimes the asset managers are brought in, particularly on the separate accounts, to go through each of the asset business plans and updates on what's going on on those assets. So it's really a collaborative approach to how we 
We'd love to hear that you start your pipeline meetings on Monday. It keeps your asset managers on their toes for the weekend. That's refreshing (laughs) to hear. We love it. So crazy year, Russia, Ukraine, Fed rate hike, some COVID hangover. There's a lot going on this year. There's no question that we're in a difficult and challenging environment right now. What, if anything, keeps you up at night with your portfolio? Is there anything that you're spending a lot more time on these days than maybe you were six months, 12 months ago? Comment a little bit, if you could, on what keeps you up at night. Obviously, the economy is worrisome and the debt markets are worrisome. Where the interest rates have gone over the past year is unprecedented that there's been so much movement in such a short period of time. And that's obviously affected cash flows. It's affected just how you look at and manage your real estate. So we've been spending a lot of time at making sure that everybody knows their debt documents, everybody knows what's coming up in terms of any covenants that have to be met, any maturities that are coming up. So we get ahead of those and we're not reacting, but we're just being proactive on those fronts. This is not new territory for you. You've you've (laughs) seen these portfolios by the way. a number of cycles. So we'd love to hear just your perspective. You've lived through several of these and managed significant portfolios through times like this. So I think having a steady hand at the rudder is important for all of these assets. What could you tell us just from an observational standpoint of you've sort of been here before and this is how we should be focusing our time? One of the things I'd say right off the bat is no two cycles are alike no two economic periods are alike. So you have to be able to adjust your playbook based on the facts and data in front of you. But having said that, there are things that you should do to make sure that you're prepared for the worst and for the best too. And I was thinking about in some of the questions you asked of what's my perspective on cycles? That's the number one perspective. But as I look back on the multiple cycles that unfortunately I've had the pleasure to be part of, there were a couple of things that I would say is takeaway for or thoughts for some folks to think about. First and foremost, I think one of the similarities in many cycles is the fact that liquidity can dry up pretty quickly. So whether you're an asset manager or portfolio manager you need to pay attention to the balance sheet of your fund and your asset to make sure that you have sufficient capital to meet the needs of, to service your debt, to be able to be there to take advantage of a lease that comes up that makes sure you have sufficient capital to invest in the space and add value to your clients. So managing your balance sheet, I think, is really important. As I already said, you need to know your documents when you're going through cycles. You, to be proactive, you need to read them yourself, not rely on somebody else. And I say that to the folks I work with. I even say my, to my kids who are in the real estate industry now, you read the documents, don't rely on someone else telling you what is in there because you need to understand what could trip you up in a legal document, whether it's loan covenants or something in a lease. I've always said that's important to be able to stay ahead of the market, to be prepared, ultimately. That's great advice. We grew up with the father at the kitchen table who was a commercial real estate attorney doing a lot of loan work. And you could see it. He was reading every word. And he used to tell us, he's he's trying to explain it to us. And he'd say, the clients want us to breeze through this. No one wants to slow this thing down. He goes, but there may come a day when someone else needs to read this document. And he said, and they're going to be looking to me and say, Steve, what did you do? We grew up watching that happen with about 100 legal pads on the kitchen table. And it resonates with us. And I think it should with many people. He still takes notes of the legal pad, by the way, if it's a hockey practice or teacher review or whatever it is, he'd always show up with the yellow legal pad. And that's when you knew you were in trouble. We talk about just this career in asset management. This has been at the top echelons and scale of doing what you do for a career. When we talk about the house view for bearings, and we talked about the advantage of having all this information and data, we actually benefit greatly because bearings makes public a lot of the research and the house macro view that bearings has. How is bearings as an overall institution looking at the world today? I think like most investors right now, we're cautious. From a real estate standpoint, we're not pencils down. We all use that phrase or that idiom, but we're careful and cautious about what we're looking at. You mentioned Kevin Miller. Kevin and I talk daily. We sit across from each other in the office here in Boston now, and he's underwriting investments. Oh, yeah. But again, with a careful, cautious eye. Right. It's really interesting. And you, by virtue of sitting over this $13 billion nationally, you have a view of all the other markets. We're conducting this interview in Boston. Mike and I happen to practice 
commercial real estate brokerage here in the greater Boston market. I am multifamily, Mike, healthcare, medical office, academic. How do you see Boston in the Northeast as a region, as it relates to the rest of the country? We hear a lot that our meds and eds and our knowledge economy is a good foundation for this environment or for this economy. And we tend to agree. And we think that's proven itself in the past couple of years. But how do you see the Northeast and Boston, greater Boston in particular, as it relates to the whole country? I mentioned already that we have the new Bearings Innovation and Growth Fund, which is a commingle fund that Joe's responsible for. And it started before my time at Bearings, but I know when they put together the strategy, they looked at what they called the 16 best Bearings STEM markets, and Boston was right up there. And the reason we're investing in those kinds of markets is because they're innovative innovation markets that are going to grow. And that's ultimately what we need to do as a real estate firm, we need to find markets that have growth prospects because that's how we're going to make money for our clients and have strong investment performance for our clients. So from the standpoint of Boston, I still think it's a very attractive market to invest in. I personally get worried about the cost of living. It's ultimately talent that you need to fill those innovation and those STEM jobs. How do you continue to attract people to come to Boston when it's so expensive to live here? How do you keep all those college students to stay in Boston when the cost of living is high. So yeah, someone else is going to have to figure that out. something we grapple with. We grapple with on a regular basis here and in our work with our guests on this podcast, the need for affordable housing. How do you solve that problem? Because it's not easy and the burden shouldn't be borne by one party or the other. It needs to be a group effort. And being in the multifamily space, I spend a lot of time thinking about this, talking about this with investors, with buyers, with the city, with the state, whoever it may be. It's a really important and topical issue and something that we've all got to kind of come to the table and figure out. And that's a pretty good transition into something else we wanted to talk about, your ESG plus R platform at Bearings. We know that's something that you're passionate about and and something you've spent a lot of time thinking about at Bearings and chairing or, or sitting on a committee, I believe, for ESG plus R. Talk about what that means to Bearings, why it's important and what it's all about. If you'll forgive me, I'll give you a little background on how I got into it because I have no background in sustainability. I have no background in ESG. But when I was at AEW, more than 10 years ago, I think it was, about 10 years ago, Pam Herbst came to me and said, we have this thing called a green committee. It's not doing enough. We have to do more. So she saw the future. She saw that this was going to be important, not only to investors, but to us as investors. So I started working on what was then we called our green committee, then it became the sustainability committee, then it morphed into the ESG committee. And I pulled together a group of people, mostly young folks who cared about it. And it was a side gig for them. And we did a really good job in advancing the topic, advancing the issue. We got a lot of eye rolls when we first started talking about it, but then people really bought in and it ended up being very successful. Then when I moved to Bearings, During my interview process, I asked John Ockerbloom, how important is this to you? And at the time, he told me it was very important. And in fact, the core fund, BCPF, Bearings Core Property Fund, was one of the leaders in the GRES survey. I think at that time, they were top five. Last year, they were number one in the GRES survey, which is great. So it tells you a little bit about the commitment to Bearings. So when I started, I worked with our head of engineering on a lot of the ESG initiatives. He retired. I still work with a new head of engineering, but I also hired Lori Mabardi from JLL to come over last summer. And she has been a huge contributor already. We are really moving the ball down the field with her in terms of improving what was already a really strong foundation in ESG to being absolute stellar group in terms of what we're doing. It starts in two ways. BCPF, our core fund, as I said, has been a leader. We're moving them even deeper into some of the issues with ESG, particularly net zero carbon pathways and the like. Mass Mutual has made a commitment to the Paris Accords. So we're working with the Mass Mutual team to make sure that we move their portfolio to the point that they can reach those targets that were set when they signed up in terms of aligning with Paris. And well, I don't work on it on a daily basis anymore. Lori does, and she's working increasingly with the debt team on it because Mass Mutual's debt book is so big that they're looking at the debt business and saying, how can we be more sustainable, more focused on ESG on the debt side as well as the equity side? And are your LPs and your separately managed accounts, are they asking for this? How that translate from the originator of the capital 
to the manager? And then how does that trickle down into the assets? How does that really work? Are your LPs asking you to focus on this too? Is that resonating? It's varied, I guess I would call it. Some LPs are definitely asking, they wanna know what's going on. Some LPs are asking more for their own education as they progress down their own journey toward ESG. And then we have investors who are in Europe that not only are asking, they're saying you have to do this because we have regulations in Europe that are much more stringent than they are in the US and we have to meet those regulations. So it runs a gamut from saying, you have to do this to this is a nice to have. But I think that even the nice to have, at least our investors are moving closer to where we are in terms of thinking it's a good thing. And don't get me wrong, I'm not doing this just because it's a feel good thing. It adds value. And I take our role as fiduciary very seriously. I firmly believe that we are adding value to the assets and to the portfolio so that we produce stronger risk adjusted returns for our investors at the end of the day. And what are some of the things you're doing just to get a little bit more granular, and you may not have an answer for this, but taking multifamily assets for an example, what are some actionable things that you're doing on the asset level to comply and push forward these ESG regulations, protocols, procedures? Is it energy plans? Is it buying only lead? What are the things that you're doing on the asset level that push this forward? Well, start with sort of the life cycle of the asset. So when we bring an asset in, the acquisition teams during due diligence, are doing an ESG checklist. We're looking at physical risks now more than we did three, four, five years ago. And I say we as an industry and physical risks, it's sea level rise, hurricanes, droughts, heat stress and the like. And we're starting to run our new acquisitions through some indices that look at some of that or some data platforms that will look at that so we can understand what we're buying, first of all, and make sure that we can underwrite it appropriate to deal with those physical risks. And then when an asset manager owns an asset, as you know, we do annual business plans. Asset managers love that every (laughs) fall. But part of our annual business plan addresses those issues. What are we doing from an energy savings standpoint? And it could be lighting, it could be more efficient equipment, it could be looking at roofs, it could be getting renewable energy. So we're looking at the whole array of options to be more efficient, to be more green, so to speak. But bottom line is if we're more efficient, we have a better run property, operating expenses are lower, presumably then that means net operating income is higher and we have created value. And I think it probably then run into a time in this market at some point where your exit is impacted, not only because of the income, but also the buyer audience on the other side when you do move on from an asset, we're probably getting closer to that point where some buyers may say, hey, we're really focused on one type of asset and this doesn't fit because it's not as efficient as what we'd like to see. And I don't know that we're I think there we're yet. at that point. You're in there, multifamily okay. anyways, deals that we're showing, if it's not Lee's Silver Plus, there are buyers who will eliminate themselves from the pool. They'll just say, it's not for us, doesn't meet our standards. This is as important a criteria as a cap rate or a cash on cash. We want to know that it's compliant with our ESG protocols. And that's interesting because when I used to say to people, when I think about resilience, we added that R a couple of years ago. I think of resilience as sort of a three-legged stool. It's physical risk. How do you understand? How do you make your building resilient to physical risk? So sea level rise. You look in the seaport now, the newer buildings, the sites are raised to deal with the impact that sea level rise is going to have there. Then we have to look at physical transition risk. What happens as we transition to a low carbon world? And it's regulatory. It could be carbon pricing someday. It could be something that's going to affect how your building is treated. And then the last piece of that, or the last leg of that stool, I look at the capital markets. What do lenders think? What do buyers think? And if you have a more sustainable asset, will you get better pricing on debt? Will you get a better price on your sale? Will you have people show up to buy it from you at the sale? I think that's really important when I think about resiliency and assets. There's no doubt on the debt side. Any of the agencies, they're focused very, very closely on those initiatives. So it's incredibly important. It's interesting. We haven't spent much time on this topic in these discussions. So this is enlightening, I think, for me and for many. Is there a concern that in a choppy capital market environment, a time when asset level cash is constrained for various reasons. Do people abandon some of the aspirations they have on the ESGR, do you think? Or are we so far into it now that it's table stakes for owners and institutional managers? Is it a nice to have? 
I think it's more than a nice to have today. Okay. When I first got involved, it was pre-GFC. And during the GFC, we had other issues to worry about and we put it to the side. There's no question. But today, I think it's maybe not table stakes, but it's pretty darn close to that, that you need to be thinking about it and you need to consider it in your acquisition and your management and ultimately your sale. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be put aside. And in fact, I was on a phone call. We have a multi-year mixed-use development in Nashville. And we were talking to our partner who happens to be Heinz about the development budget. Construction costs have gone up. Where can we value engineer? And we were on a phone call with a big group, actually, a reasonably sized group. And John Ockerbloom was on the call with us and he said, nope, we're not cutting back on any of this ESG stuff because this is a five to 10 year development cycle. By the time we move through the development cycle and go to sell this, that's really going to matter. So we have to build for the future. Wow. Yeah. I think that's a great comparison. You think 10 years ago, you were ahead of this ESG movement, I think, in your career and you were right to be focused on it. Now it's serving you very well because the capital markets, the LP world is caught up to it. The whole world has had their eyes opened up to how important this is. And now you're in a position where you can manage this portfolio effectively and go on offense instead of trying to hide all the worms in the property. Yeah, so. and it's cool to hear too that it adds to the bottom line. For you, this isn't just an altruistic endeavor. This isn't just corporate responsibility. You as a fiduciary see that this improves the asset's performance, improves the bottom line. and so. It's a value add. It's something you're doing just as much for the investors and their benefits as it is for your ability to sleep at night. So it's really cool to hear. This is why we want to have you on, Maureen. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Bearings, bearings is saying this is important. <laughs> then I think people hear that. That's pretty powerful. We want to sort of walk through a couple of topics. One thing Tommy and I know, because we sit right by Deb Gould in our office, who's been a dominant downtown leasing broker for many, many years in the Boston market. And just from being around Deb, we know that you have a great group of friends in this business including a core group of women who you've sort of grown up with in the industry. All of you, from what we've seen, have excelled on different paths. How has that nucleus played a role in your career or in your life at large? Because we hear these names all the time and we know you get together, but this is an industry which still probably does not have enough representation of women at various levels. And you've had an amazing career and you must have some observations about what that's been like and what's changed and what has not changed that should. It's changed a lot. I mean, when I first got into the industry, if I was in a meeting, I was usually the only woman. Maybe there was another woman in the meeting. Now that's changed completely. And in fact, when I look back on my career and some of the folks that I grew up with, particularly at Copley, because that's where I really started and was younger, a lot of them left the industry because it was hard to have kids, to manage a family, and to stay full-time. As the world has changed and as people, men and women, have said, we need women in the industry and we're willing to be more flexible, women can stay. They can work part-time. I worked for a while when I was at AEW. I worked a four-day schedule. Now I got 80% of my pay back then, but it was so important and so crucial for me to be able to have that flexibility on Friday. I generally did some work, but I had the flexibility to be with my kids when they were young and go into their school. It mattered. And that's enabled me to stay in the industry. And I'm forever grateful for Pam Herbst for giving me the opportunity to have that flexibility. But as we fast forward to today, I think more women have been able to stay in the industry because men and women who were senior to them said, I'm going to give you the flexibility that you need because I value your contribution and I value you and our organization. So let's figure out how to keep you here and we'll work through it. And in terms of my group of friends with Deb, it's been great. Everyone's supportive. And it's not just about being part of the industry. We have a lot of fun together. We really enjoy each other and it's great. And while some of us grew up in the industry, some of us are older than others in this little group that we have. <laughs> we <laughs> won't draw more, those comparisons today. <laughs> and we're more like big sisters to some of the younger oh, so folks in our little group, but it's great. We yeah. have so much fun. In our short time in the business, we have seen it change. We have seen that environment change for women in the business. And not some of the most impressive. The most impressive people in our office are moms. Sam Hallowell, Casey Giudicelli. These are young women who work incredibly hard and have really established themselves and have incredible platforms. And so even in the 10, 15 years that we've been in the business, we've seen a change. And kudos to you for being a great role model for that whole group, that whole group of people. I think it's an acknowledgement, like you said, acknowledgement by senior people at whatever firm or business you're at to say, hey, Tom and I are both young dads. And 
We understand I'm younger. now. I'm two years younger. Yeah, he's, he's, for everybody he's, listening. Yeah, he has a baby. I have three little boys, but it's now we actually can see what goes into raising children. And I think that it takes conviction and someone putting their foot down and saying, hey, if we want to keep talented people on this team or in this business, this is how we're going to have to operate and find a way to make it work, which obviously many people do, but, but more need to do it. It just adds to the fabric of the organization, I think, to have folks. And what I've seen over the years, too, is more young dads who are racing to pick the kids up at daycare, too, not just the mom who's right. running out the door. It's a more shared experience now. My wife, who's not in the real estate business, she's in the private equity business, but we're figuring this out right now on the fly. We have a six-month-old. She's back at work. Who's going home at 530 to relieve the babysitter or daycare or whatever that may be? It's a challenge. It's a challenge, but it's shared now. It shouldn't be the mom. Right. That shouldn't exactly. be the rule. So that's a good transition. We're talking about motherhood and among your many achievements, your family, we know you're incredibly proud of and you should be. You have sons, a couple sons who are in the real estate business. We'd love to hear about the family life a little bit, what they're up to these days. And clearly and, they learned a lot at the kitchen table. Yeah, these are impressive guys. They did because both parents were in the real estate industry. As I said, I met my husband at Copley Real Estate Advisors. And then for years he taught at Babson. He taught several real estate courses at Babson. So the kids heard this. And actually, would unbeknownst to them, they didn't realize it would, they'd be on property tours as we go <laughs> locally to look at <laughs> oh, some so properties. Great. But they both are in the industry. They came out of college. My older son came out of school and he moved to California for rowing, not for the real estate industry. But he happened to meet somebody who was at Heinz, who was a rower at Harvard, where my son went to school, and he hired him while he was training for the U.S. national not just team. Any, not just any rower. We understand he is an Olympian, which yes, is pretty Connor, impressive. Connor Harity is an Olympic rower. He was in the eight that was in Japan. We didn't get to go because of COVID, but nonetheless, he still got to compete. That was great. And then my younger son, who went to Boston College, Matt, works for Alliance Residential, and he's doing ground-up development with Mike Bajulian. And they're both learning so much. It's really fun to talk to them and hear what they're up to. And I really am proud because they're learning so much and they come up with some things that I thought, wow, you're just a couple years into this and you know this stuff already? Good for you. Yeah. Keep well, on it's going. It's no surprise at a place like Heinz and, and Alliance, Mike Bajillion is one of the brightest in the business. And so your son's been exposed to some great projects and we're sure is learning a lot. And I'll say, not often is the non-Olympian going to be the more impressive son here, but Mike and I are BC grads, so we're on, yeah, uh, we're on our votes with Matt. Here. Connor, you're great, <laughs> but I want to pick your brain for a second because you've raised what everyone has told us are two great people. Raising an Olympian is a unique thing. What was that like? Obviously, I know they were both great athletes. We've heard that many times. Raising an Olympian, I mean, it just Olympic rowing. We love the book Boys in the Boat, so we both learned about rowing. We have George DeMoulis in our private capital group was a rower at Trinity. Ryan Patton, a good buddy of ours from Wheelock Street, was a rower at Syracuse. They've schooled us on the world of rowing. We were completely naive before. What was that like having your son go through this incredible athletic track and end up as an Olympian? He did it himself. My husband will say to people who ask us the same questions, the only thing I gave him was height because <laughs> <laughs> we're both tall and he's 6'4". Matt's taller at 6'5". He was just really always focused. He played both of them, as you both will know, as your kids get older, you're going to have them in every single sport. They played football, they played soccer, they played lacrosse, they played baseball, they played basketball, they swam. And when he was going into freshman year in high school, he went to BC High, he decided he would do this instead of football or soccer in the fall. So he went out for the team and he came back and said, this is pretty cool. I really like this. There are people that were in this race that are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. I can do this for the rest of my life. And he and had just he been exposed to, to the sport before? No, he took a learn to row two week program the summer before he started high school. So Weston cool. had a good program with Weston Whalen, but he wasn't exposed to it until he went to high school. And I will tell you, the rowing team at BC High had grit. They would jog from BC High to Neponset and get in the, the river there and row over there. And eventually they moved to Union Boat Club when he was still at BC High. So they'd have to take the train or drive over to Cambridge. Yeah, that's not next right. door in the no, town. No, it's not next door. But those kids did it every single day. I mean, they'd get home late and it was just unbelievable dedication. I think pound for pound, when you talk to people who 
played these sports, anyone that can compete at that level is impressive. But sometimes these sports where you're pushing your body to the absolute max, which I'm sure as a mother, sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I can't watch because you get these kids keeling over in their boat. It's just incredible. It's a great sport. I still know very little about it. I love Head of the Charles. Great, of the Charles. great, great day. There are so Bring many the great... barber out. Go down oh, Head yeah. of the Charles. Even yeah. better than Head of the Charles is the Royal Henley Liver. Henley yeah. 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 Say, he, you've been to that a couple times. Yeah, we, sure. he went when he was at BC High and then he went at Harvard. And then after he graduated, he went with California Rowing. They asked him to join a boat that he was part of. So, so he cool. went over there. Here, and he actually went with Union Boat Club one time, too. He loves it. He's head head of the there. Charles, you wear a barber. There you wear a blazer. Oh, he's got the Henley blazer. There's so no cool. question about it. Yeah, Tommy gets his barber rewaxed every year. He's very, <laughs> very dedicated. Not true. It's a not beautiful true. thing. No, it's an amazing sport. And we know not without tremendous sacrifice. That was a lot of work to do anything in the Olympics. There's sacrifice from the athlete and from the family. And we commend you. That's just, it's amazing to hear. The most amazing thing was what all the Olympic athletes went through in 2020. I mean, as you guys know, that must athletes, have been tough. Yeah. They're training to peak in July of 2020. And toward the end of May, they were told, nope, it's not going to happen. We don't know if it's going to happen next year, if we're going to cancel it entirely. And to then come to the conclusion or the decision that I'm going to give it another year and keep doing this and get back on the track and go, all those athletes deserve a lot of credit because it wasn't easy on any of them, I think. I can't imagine. Just a lifetime of emotional adrenaline leading up to this moment and then to have things sort of altered like that. You can't compare that to anything. I can't imagine what that was like. And then as a parent, you're watching your son go through it and you feel sort of helpless. And then you get to the office and you have 25% vacancy all of a sudden and you have a lot more to think about on the asset management side. It's a lot, but that is very cool. I know you're proud of both your sons and we look forward to working with them in some way. Mostly I'm proud because they're just good young men. Yeah, they really we've are. Heard, we've That's heard great awesome. things. So another thing that we'd like to talk about is how you engage in the community philanthropically, politically. We think it's the hallmark of any great investor or asset manager is, is how they give back, how they affiliate themselves with their communities. What's important to you? What do you spend your free time doing from a philanthropic standpoint? And for Bearings, what's important? Bearings is involved in so many really worthy causes. So how do you funnel that down? For me personally, I've been involved in Campaign for Catholic Schools for quite a while. And I know it's a it's near and dear yeah, to near, our heart. Near and dear. So yes. We teed so, this up because we just love it. And yeah. you, you've been right at the front of that charge. Yeah, my younger brother called me and said, come over and meet these people. And so I've been involved with him. We both went to Catholic school. Our dad grew up in Dorchester, so it was a natural fit for us. And the stuff and the accomplishments that the campaign has done for the schools in Dorchester and for those young kids who they open the world to them and the success in educating them and getting them on a path to college and great careers is really remarkable and it's really impressive. When I was still at AEW, I had some kids come over for lunch. We had pizza in a conference room because they aren't around office buildings like right. this or this kind of environment. And they were to a person so impressive, so smart. And they were sixth graders. You can just see they're going to take on the world with a lot of energy and a lot of success in the future. That's amazing. It is near and dear to our heart, the Core Griffin Foundation. We spend a lot of time with the St. John Paul campuses in Dorchester. And every time you go there, it is so energizing and so incredible. And you're just struck by how these young people how they're growing and maturing. And it's because they're in those schools. They are lucky and they know it. They're grateful. And it's just one of the best things that we're involved with too. So it's a great organization. We've been very fortunate to get to know the Catholic school system and campaign for Catholic schools. Our father ran the, the oversaw the Ireland funds in this part of the country for over a decade. So we, we got to know Jack Connors in that way and talk about a leader in motivating other people to take action. And I think it's hard to see from the boardroom until you visit the schools and you see these little kids who you're helping. And like you said, all they need is a boost. These kids have it. They just, they've never seen an office building. Jack Connors, Camp Arborview, a lot of these kids had never swam in the ocean. Puts tears in your eyes thinking about these little children who live in this city with all these great things going on here a mile away and they don't have access to it unless someone is going to take the time out of their day and take some capital and give them the boost, which... That's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah, so. it's great. I've been involved with Heading Home, another organization near and dear to the real estate community. So between housing and 
kids' education. That's really my focus in terms of philanthropy and what I want to try to do two, to help. Two great causes. Yeah. So well and done. You've, you've, well been, chosen. A, you've been a leader in both regards, and I'm sure that's going to continue. So on behalf of our whole audience, thank you for that. And we hope you keep the foot on the gas. So shifting a little bit, this has been a great discussion about your career path. And we learned a lot about bearings today, which was awesome. We want to talk, you know, we talked about your family, just you as a person, your sort of day-to-day whether it's your routine or what are you reading on a regular basis and what do you do in your spare time for fun? Now that you're not going to watch lacrosse games and rowing competitions, races, what are you spending your time on? They're called regattas, Mike. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> See? I have to say I miss those days because it's really fun and meeting the families of the boys who are competing is always fun too. But it is different to having the two kids out of the house. There's more time for my husband and me from a day-to-day standpoint, I travel a fair amount for work. So I go out to the markets that we're investing in. I meet with our local operating partners, leasing teams and the like with the asset managers. So that keeps me busy, literally on the road. I've started to play tennis again. I took a very long hiatus. So my husband and I have been out on the courts as much as possible this fall and winter. So that's been good. It's good to get exercise, but it's also just fun to play tennis. And then last summer, I have to say, I have always been a wannabe golfer. I've gone out a couple of times with Deb, who is a very patient person with me, (laughs) with me at least on the golf course. So I started diving back into trying to figure out that game of golf and with some limited success, but I'm not done. I'll keep going. Have you played any pickleball? Yes, of course. Everyone's played pickleball by now, haven't I they? I love pickleball. It's so much fun. My six-year-old son, George, loves pickleball. It's great. It's a great sport for little kids, too. It's really pickleball fun. Pickleball comes up in these conversations more than I would have expected. I think we've I talked know. about we, it three times. We have to ban pickleball chat for a few we're, episodes. We're, and I'm going to call Kevin when we hang up here and talk to him about it, but we're going to bring to market a value-add multifamily portfolio in Greater Boston. And what did they do over the past five years? They took the old basketball courts and made pickleball courts at all six of them. So yep, I had a amazing. deal that I was looking at in Florida a couple of years ago, and there was a site and I said, we got to put a pickleball court. And at the time they were like, what's a pickleball court? And I said, oh, no, no, you it's, have to it's play this game. It's really fun. It's a great equalizer. So I think every month, that's the thing. It's no more sport courts at multifamily. Right. It's going to be pickleball courts. I love it. I promise not to bring it up again for a few, uh, <laughs> no, a few I, interviews. I, th- I think it's good. It ties everything together nicely. In your roles over a really illustrious career, you've owned, managed, developed, sold many billions of dollars of assets at this point. It's probably impossible to pick, but are there any that stick out to you as noteworthy or interesting or something that you're proud of? There's a lot of deals that I've done that I'm proud of, but one of the things I'm most proud of was the culture we created at AEW. And one of the things that really stood out in terms of that positive collaborative culture was Probably seven, nine years ago when flash mobs were a thing, (laughs) I was at an airport with a couple guys and I was showing them the it was at the Harvard baseball team's little video to Carly Rae Jepsen's song. I think it was called Call Call Me Me Maybe. Maybe. Yep. Guilty as charged. I listened to that a few times. I said, we should do a flash mob at the annual meeting. They looked at me like I had 10 heads. So I went back to the office and I was saying this to a couple of women who happened to be dancers. I said, what do you think about doing a flash mob? They took it and ran with it. And they really choreographed a dance. We found some vacant space over at Seaport West. People would sneak out during the course of the day because we wanted this to be secret and rehearse it. Oh my gosh. And the asset management team, the portfolio management team, the accounting team would go out during the day, learn the steps. And then when it came down to the annual meeting, they had the end of the meeting, the CEO wrapped up, music was turned on. It was Nicki Minaj, Starships or something. And three women get up in the back of the room, started dancing. (laughs) And then other people came to the back of the room, started dancing. And at first, the crowd didn't know what was going on. They thought it was part of the hotel. It was at the Seaport Hotel. And then the whole team was up there dancing to this song that (laughs) the dancers choreographed to. My big regret, candidly, was my idea, but I was in London. I was actually at Henley watching my son row 
but I got to see it live stream from one of my colleagues oh, who had his phone and was it. We it was see great. It. it was one of my <laughs> happiest accomplishments that at is the amazing. firm, despite what? all the asset management and portfolio management and ESG stuff that I did. That was definitely the pinnacle of my career We, so we need to do a little more diligence because we have a lot of friends who have gone through the AEW machine over the years, and I'm sure some of them were involved. So we're going to have to follow up and see that video. Yeah, this is a separate research assignment. Connell Chamberlain will help us with yeah, this. We'll, exactly. dig, we'll dig down deep. I think if you can't have fun at an organization of that size and caliber, like where you are today, the days can get pretty monotonous, especially in a market like this. If you can't find a way to have fun and smile and laugh with your colleagues and your teammates, the road can be long. So that's awesome. It's a hallmark of the places that you've been and that culture that you guys built and your handprints are all over it is pretty special. It really is. And I love Bearings because it's a similar kind of supportive, collaborative culture. It's really great. That's awesome. So cool. Great answer. I love it. We talked about all the data that you have at Bearings, but when you wake up in the morning, I mean, you could choose from a list of a thousand things to read and help you inform the decisions you make that day. And one thing I'll say, you mentioned the Bearings Research Department. If you go online and just read sort of the Bearings Annual Outlooks, the Real Estate Outlook, the Debt Outlook, it's fascinating material. You guys do an incredible job and you share it with the public. This videos does a great podcast. Now that Tommy and I are podcasters, we got to mention it. It's streaming income that Bearings produces. It's a podcast that is available everywhere. It re- awesome episodes. Oh, yeah. Really, and, really. And the, all the content's great. There was Joe Gordon was on a panel with four or five folks, I think last week or two weeks ago. There's awesome. You know, if any younger people, you know, we know younger people are listening to this podcast in addition to our mom and dad. It's a big audience. We appreciate all of you, <laughs> all four of you. They're young. Yeah. But all young people who listen to this podcast, you should go to the Bearings, subscribe to that streaming income podcast because it's great material. It's really informative. Back to my question though, Maureen, you have so many inputs of data every day. You have, we're talking about $14 billion of assets that you're managing. What do you read every day? What's the start of the day look like for you? I read the journal right out of the gate, the Times, try to read the Globe, but I read the Globe more for the sports page than for the rest of the Globe because that's just pretty much now a synopsis of what's sports happening. Page, sports page and obituaries yeah. in the Globe. The they Irish got, they sports got, page. Yeah, the Irish sports, the page. Irish sports <laughs> page. Exactly. <laughs> When we get stuff coming across email from Bearings or on the Bearings website, I'll try to get to that. But as you guys point out, there's a lot to read. There's a lot of data to absorb. So sometimes I just rely on someone else shooting me something to tell me to put it at the top of the list. One of the sources of information I really like in the industry is Green Street. I read Green Street stuff as much as I can. I think it's really insightful. It's really interesting. We have a great relationship with Green Street and Newmark and and their data and information and research is really good. And Maureen, I appreciate one thing you told us. We had released one episode when we invited Maureen to join us. She hadn't missed an episode yet, which yes, is amazing. Batting a thousand. This is so great. The head of US real estate asset management for bearings, again, that's a $350 billion entity, hasn't missed an episode of Good Dirt. What does that tell you? I think mom and dad are going to be proud. Very, I'm very great. proud. So Maureen, we'll go to some fun questions here. If tonight we said you could go to dinner in one place in the world with a crew, where would you be going? I really like Pammy's in Cambridge. Have you guys been yeah, there? Yeah, it's the best. It's, it's really awesome. good. It's that's really a good. Great good choice. So if I was going to pick a restaurant, that's where I'd go. More human interest here, Maureen. Most memorable live performance you've ever seen? Or are you not a music person? I'm not that big a music person. If I had to say one, I would say I saw Eric Clapton at what was Great Woods at the time. See, that's great. That's and amazing. it was unbelievable. That's an awesome yeah. answer. That's the content very, we wanted. Very, very cool. Slow hands. <laughs> Eric Clapton. That is cool. I bet he performed Layla, one of my favorite songs. It's the best. Yeah, that's cool. Well, you've been incredibly generous with your time. We so appreciate you sitting down with us and talking through yourself, talking through bearings, spending over an hour. So you've been super generous. We appreciate it very much. We want to get you off to whatever it is you're doing tonight, whether it's a concert or Pammy's, and we yeah. hope to see you soon. And I would say, let's all keep an eye on Connor Harity and Matt Harity. Maybe we'll do a family reunion podcast. That would be fun. Get the whole I like crew. It. And I'll suggest we'll bring Deb Gold and Jack Gold in too. Yes, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be really we'll get fun. Haley as well. We'll we might need to hire security. That would be really fun. And we look forward to it. We'll definitely have you back, Maureen, because it's been a great conversation. We've learned a ton about you and about your role at Bearings. It's a pleasure for us at Newmark to be able to interact with the Bearings platform as often as we do. We, we feel very fortunate. You guys are such a great institution. You're at a place that, like I said, financed the Louisiana Purchase best real estate deal of all time. 
Well, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Appreciate it. Well, we hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as we did. On the advisory and transactional side of the business, we seem to sometimes miss the perspective of someone in Maureen's shoes who's there throughout the investment life cycle, both at the property and the portfolio level. So we appreciate Maureen sharing with us those lessons that she learned over the course of her spectacular career in institutional real estate investing. So thanks to Maureen. Before we break off, we want to take some time to remember and honor an American hero, Navy SEAL, Chief Naval Special Warfare Operator, Michael Ernst, who grew up in Cohasset and was a classmate and teammate of ours at Thayer Academy, lost his life a few weeks ago in a freefall parachute training accident. Ernie was an all-American type kid, excelling in everything he pursued, including being a star on both the Thayer hockey and lacrosse teams and going on to pay lacrosse at Denison University. Upon graduation, Mike immediately focused his efforts on becoming a Navy SEAL, a dream that he had quietly harbored for some years. Not surprisingly, he made it through the excruciating SEALs process and went on to serve our country as a Navy SEAL for 12 years. No doubt, Ernie was in and out of harrowing situations over the years, but in true understated fashion, he referred to his career as work, as if he was headed to the office every day like the rest of us. Ernie's death is a heartbreaking but important reminder that even when our soldiers are on American soil, especially those serving as Navy SEALs and in special operations roles, They are risking life and limb just to train, to stay ready and prepared, to protect our nation, and when necessary, fight the bad guys. This sacrifice is not just one made by our soldiers, but by their families. Ernie leaves behind a loving wife and two beautiful young children, who are now faced with life without their husband and father by their side. It is difficult to imagine how their world has been turned upside down. We ask a few things of our listeners. Please take some time to pray for Mike, his family, and for all the soldiers that continue to protect us around the world on a daily basis, often with little fanfare. Please speak about this sacrifice with your spouses and your children and prioritize this topic at your dinner table tonight. We should be so grateful for the bravery of Americans like Michael Ernst. Finally, we ask that you consider supporting Mike's wife and his two children by donating through the Navy SEAL Foundation to a fund that has been set up for the Ernst family. 100% of your donation will go to Mike's widow and his two beautiful kids. The link to donate is in the show notes. If you have any issues with that, please contact Tom or I, and we will happily provide it to you. Thank you, Ernie, for your sacrifice. You are a true American hero and will never be forgotten.